Thank you for reminding us of Jesus' love for us and that he's there. I just want to encourage you. Our young people are willing to work, and tomorrow uh, there's a bulletin insert. Be sure and see that. And if you can support them tomorrow, help them out. And then also uh, the trip to the wilderness area we call the Boundary Waters hangs in the balance. We need rain. So if you'd be praying for rain, makes a big difference. Uh, it's currently closed, which is unprecedented in the history, I think, of the park. This world is waxing old, but please pray. Let's pray together. Lord, we have gathered here in your house. We've been blessed. And we're asking, Lord, for more blessings. We're praying, Lord, that we would draw deep and near into a relationship with you and each other. That we would be made strong by waiting on you. And I'm asking, Lord, that you would do what you said you would do, and may we not be in your way, that you'd finish the work that you began. So please do that for us personally and use us, Lord, to reach a lost world is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to just follow up a little bit on last weekend. I want to say thank you to those people who reached out to me either in text or email. And uh, I think it'd be safe to say that's in the multiple dozens. Um, some were concerned, some were thankful. It was a spectrum. And certainly you're involved in some of those dialogues. I'm just going to touch on four. This one comes from a young woman. She says, I just wanted to reach out and thank you for all that your church is doing. The past weekend gave me a lot of hope in a society that seems like only evil prevails. That was encouraging. This one comes from a former head of a university biology department. As a scientist and an academic, I have carefully studied the literature and the media swirling around this pandemic. And uh, he was very thankful for the weekend and the uh, individuals who spoke. This one comes from a high up administrator in our church. He writes, I sense this was thoughtfully organized. It was a discussion which provided significant insight to those who participated in person or viewed the presentations from afar. I viewed and reviewed many of the presentations and taken notes on the insights that were offered. And this one comes from a municipal health department in our county. And it says, thank you for this Sabbath programs. It has 12 points on it and it's signed by at least four physicians. Now, uh, obviously when you have an experience like last weekend, it's not a final word, it's a dialogue. And so for those of you that are in the midst of those dialogues, may the Lord bless you with wisdom and grace. And I want to restate, uh, our position is not for or against any medical treatment, but it is for open and fair discussion and it is also for the benefit of that discussion in scientific discovery. I'd like to bring my slides up for this morning. I mentioned this one at prayer meeting, the first one, and it gave me, uh, it probably did more for me than anything this whole week in the midst of the heaviness of some of these discussions. Is there one we have before that by chance? 
Um, it was a slide sent to me by my wife, and uh, this is it right here. This is from Meyer, so I want to thank the owners of Meyer. Welcome back, Sandy. Pony rides for just one cent. And the reason that brought me so much joy was the sense that life could be ordinary in some sense again. And while we are continuing to manage, obviously, with the rest of the world, different variants of the COVID-19 virus, uh, there is some hope that we don't live in the pressure cooker of these dynamics forever and ever. This morning, I want to go on a journey. If we could go to the other slideshow now. I want to go on a journey about the responsibilities of being a church, of being salt and light. Matthew says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. This morning, we need to remember that being the salt of the earth is a very important thing. It has a preservative and a flavoring dynamic. And when it is all said and done, God's people have always made the world a better place, even though they haven't always been appreciative. Here we have Larry W. Hurtado, published by Baylor Press, The Destroyer of the Gods. He says, what made the early Christian stance in such matters, that is, culture-changing dynamics, like the destruction of infanticide, the ending of the uh, tremendous violence that took place as sport in the broader public, the licentiousness that was covered up inside of marital relationships, pedophilia, and the list could go on. All of these in the Roman Empire. What made the early Christian stance in such matters different was not always the sentiment itself, but that it was openly expressed and was intended to shape the social behavior, certainly among Christians and also even amongst the wider public. Infant exposure typically involved casting the unwanted new baby, born baby, on a trash heap or some abandoned place the infant left to die or be collected by someone, usually to be reared for slavery. What we need to understand is that over the period of three centuries, the Christians, through the power of an involved witness, conquered the pantheon of Roman gods, brought, brought monotheism and a value system to the world that has made a difference for untold millions, perhaps even billions. From the very beginning of Christian history, Christians impacted their societies and sometimes at a cost. Now, I'm going to skip over the broad spectrum of Protestantism all the way down to the beginning of Adventism and then Seventh-day Adventism. This is an article by Kevin Burton, appeared in the Adventist world, and I want to bring some things to your attention which most of you are probably not aware of and may need to be reminded of if you are. Joseph and Prudus Bates were leading abolitionists in Fairhaven, Massachusetts during the 1830s and 40s. They signed and circulated petitions to abolish slavery and prevent the annexation of new slave states. And you say, well, no big deal, except for this, that most of the world at this point in time wasn't on the anti-abolitionist uh, train or on the abolitionist train yet. 
This was not seen as it's seen today, and what they were doing was radical and new, and it wasn't appreciated by all. Seventh-day Adventists also incorporated abolitionist arguments into the three angels' messages. Now, this would be considered taboo today, but it's something for all of us to think about. The first angel, they warned, was that the hour of God's judgment was at hand, and Adventists emphasized that if pro-slavery Americans remained unrepentant, they would be doubly punished for their sins. That societal issue, that politically polarized issue, was tied directly to the three angels' message. And I'm going to show you the next two. These are direct quotes from the article. The second angel warned that Babylon was fallen, and Millerites came out of Protestant churches, that is Babylon, because those churches supported slavery. And Ellen White specified that any Seventh-day Adventist holding pro-slavery sympathies must be immediately disfellowshipped. Here's the quote. In regards to someone who held these, and perhaps even slaves themselves, unless you undo what you've done, it will be the duty. This is personally written to somebody. It will be the duty of God's people, that is the church, to publicly withdraw their sympathy and fellowship from you in order to save the impression which must go out in regards to us as a people. We must let it be known that we have no such ones in our fellowship and that we walk not with them in church capacity. Now again, being against slavery today is a slam dunk. And of course, there's other issues relative to race relationships that we can and should be involved in. But in this moment in time, this was still a very controversial and politically charged issue. And finally, the third angel. Seventh-day Ave is connected to the third angel's message with the anti-slavery cause. Revelation 13, 1 to 18 reveals that the two-horned beast enforces idolatry, and Adventists identified America as this beast because it professes to uphold religious and civil liberty, but in reality denied those privileges to racial and religious minorities. So every one of the three angels' messages was tagged with this highly polarizing and political subject matter. Now, it gets worse if you consider public relations as an issue for the church. James White wrote a famous piece in the Sabbath Herald, August 12, 1862. In his famous editorial, The Nation, White revealed America's place in prophecy and identified slavery as the darkest and most damning sin upon the nation. Now, that's a direct quote. He predicted that the nation would drink of God's wrath as punishment for the sin of slavery. He even encouraged Adventists, and this was probably the most surprising thing, to vote for Lincoln interpreting that vote as a decision against slavery and against the secession of the South. Now, if this were to happen in modern day, there would be a cry of objection about the mixing of politics and religion. But what everybody here needs to understand is the church is not this insulated bubble riding through time. It is the infusion of God's grace into the culture, and sometimes that culture has been engaged by political leaders as well. But we don't avoid cultural challenges because they've been hijacked or utilized by politicians as well. This was probably the most politically charged subject matter of the 1850s and the 1860s. And you're seeing where the Adventist church stood on it. Those who are loyal to the government of heaven, he would go on to say, direct quote from James White, True to the Constitution and the laws of the ruler of the universe are the last men to sneak off to Canada or to Europe or to stand trembling in their shoes for fear of a military draft. Is God their father? Now, if you want to look this up, you can do that. And what you'll find out is that it generated a lot of negative publicity for James White. 
But does that mean he stepped back from it? Does that mean he failed to share his opinions? And they were shared publicly. Now, new article by Roy Branson, Ellen White, racist or champion of equality. Today, denouncing slavery and its advocates does not seem revolutionary. But the majority did not oppose slavery in the mid-19th century America. So that's when these Adventist sentiments were being shared. So many good and regular members of the Methodist denomination condoned slavery that the church split, S-P-L-I-T. And it's a large one in 1844. And he goes on to tell us more. A year later, slavery divided the Baptist. These denominations provided most of the members for the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which at that time was working largely in North America. In 1857, the New Side Presbyterians could no longer agree on Christian attitude towards slavery. So many Christians defended slavery in 1861. That says majority think that three denominations were torn apart, the Old Side Presbyterians, Lutherans, and Episcopalians. Great men, Ellen White will write, professing to have human hearts, have seen the slaves almost naked and starving and have abused them and sent them back to their cruel masters' hopeless bondage. This is the Fugitive Slave Act. They have deprived men of their liberty and free air, which heaven was never denied them, and then left them to suffer for food and clothing. And the nation proclaimed a fast, and this was her commentary. In view of all this, a national fast is proclaimed. Oh, what an insult to Jehovah. I want everybody to think about this. Seventh-day Adventists, as they were coming out of other churches, were committed to the light-giving, salt-preserving dynamics of watching holiness in its beauty invade the culture. They paid a price for it. They were in the minority, but it happened nonetheless. Roy Branson goes on to state, clearly Mrs. White stood with that abolitionist minority, I want you to underline the word minority in the North, which condemned those who hesitated or equivocated on the emancipation issue. Now let's go to the next challenging issue that Adventism is involved in. Some of you recognize Carrie Nation. She was called Hatchet Granny. That's because the temperance movement in America was very powerful for about 70 to 80 years. From, I'll say, the early 1800s all the way up until we have a constitutional amendment that creates prohibition, the 18th Amendment. For a period of 70 to 80 years, the concept of temperance and the getting rid of alcohol, that's what prohibition was. The excising of alcohol out of the common society was a politically charged discussion. She would go into bars and taverns and she would hatchet them. And she was a very famous woman with the temperance movement. Now, Seventh-day Adventist, well, let's look at the drunkard's progress. You can't see the slide real well, but it starts over here with social drinking. It's a progression of degression, and it ends up with someone putting a gun to their own head. This was some of the common thought. I want you to understand how prominent this was. The states that were of prohibition ilk are the white states, the light, uncolored states in the north. The states in the south were against prohibition. It's a pretty easy-to-see distinction. And for a time, after the great earthquake along the coast of California, the authorities in San Francisco and some of the smaller cities and towns ordered the closing of all liquor saloons. So marked were the effects of this strictly enforced ordinance, 
that the attention of thinking men throughout America and notably on the Pacific coast was directed to the advantages that would result from a permanent closing of the saloons. This was a mighty movement in America. Of all who claimed to be numbered among the friends of temperance, Ellen White would write, Seventh-day Adventists should stand in the front. Now, what you need to know before I go any farther is that the Republican Party was formed in 1844 over the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And that was an attempt, it was a dialogue about the extension of slavery into the new states. And what goes on there is that you have a party that is built on the abolition of slavery. The first president elected to be a Republican leader of this nation was Abraham Lincoln. Republicanism, not as a function of democratic republic, but in contrast, Republicans versus Democrats, the Republican Party dominated American culture from 1861 to 1932. So you have this very strong grasp on power. What I want you to see is that some of these things that, that the Adventists were championing could and were easily woven into the fabric of political discourse, but that did not stop the Adventists from having discussions about how the implementation of God's way into the culture would make the culture a better place. So here we are at this moment. Now, Seventh-day Adventism and one of its leaders, Ellen White, will be involved in, at least if you're a female, the Women's Christian Temperance Organization. But enter Neil Dow. Neil Dow was called the Napoleon of Prohibition. He went on to become a, a mayor, a governor, mayor of Portland, Maine, and then he would go on to work in the army, rise to the rank of brigadier general, and then he would represent Maine in the House of Representatives. What I want you to know about this, having just seen the map from 1855, I want you to watch Ellen White's observations here about the state of Maine. Here we go. If our people can be made to realize how much is at stake and will seek to redeem the time that's been lost by now putting heart and soul and strength into the temperance cause, great good will be seen as the result. May the Lord save Maine from joining in the confederacy of evil for the support of the liquor traffic. She was not reluctant at all to throw the weight of her prophetic influence behind something she felt was salt and light for the betterment of American society. Uh, in spite of the fact that politicians were leveraging this for their political good. She writes, I rejoice it has been my privilege to bear my testimony on this subject before crowded assemblies in many countries. And in contrast, and also in compliment, many times I've spoken on this subject to large congregations at our camp meetings. What she is saying and what you should know is that she was a sought-after speaker in non-Adventist temperance meetings. So the work of temperance was in the ascendancy in the Republican Party and those leaning with that conservative tendency for a period of many, many years. She did not fail to engage in proper societal dialogue through the exercise of good discretion and with the protections of a spirit-filled, prayerful deliberation. And in the youth structure, October 27, 1908, there's a clear appeal for prohibition from Mrs. White. Let the danger from the liquor traffic be made plain and public sentiment be created that shall demand its prohibition. Now, I just want you to ask yourself, how is that public sentiment going to be created? Do the churches have any role? Think about it. Let the voices of the nation 
demand of its lawmakers that a stop be put to this infamous traffic that is ruining the lives of men. Where are those voices to come from? Is the church to sit in silence? Is it to coast through life in a little bubble? Or is it to actually be salt and light? Upon us to whom God has given great light rests the solemn responsibility of calling the attention of thinking men and women to the significance of the prevalence of drunkenness and crime with which they are so familiar. We should bring before their minds the scriptures that plainly portray the conditions which shall exist just prior to the second coming of Christ. And faithfully should we uplift the divine standard and raise our voices in protest against the sanctioning of the liquor traffic by legal enactment. Now, in this article here, written in Ad Vindicate by Mr. Sapian, he says, commenting on our church and the society at large, in regulating such substances, a civil government can eliminate a large amount of grief in crimes carried out by individuals without sobriety of mind. In other words, drunkards. This falls under the jurisdiction of a civil government to do as it is to maintain civil order. Writing of Ellen White, she says she openly supported the work of the Women's Christian Temperance Union on the platform of prohibiting liquor sales and consumption. However, she would not sanction all of their political activities. So the indisputable message is, is that she supported some of their political activities, but not all of their political activities. In other words, Christian discretion and the ultimate goal of the church prohibited a complete endorsement, but it also required a qualified endorsement. The light has been given to me that we are not to stand aloof from them, but while there is to be no sacrifice of principle on our part, as far as possible, we are to unite with them in laboring for temperance reforms. Now, there was a, a high up uh, leader in the Christian temperance reform movement that was converted to the three angels message. Ellen White did not direct her to get out of the organization. This is her counsel. I am so glad, my sister, that you did not sever your connection with the Women's Christian Temperance Union. You may have to sever this connection, but not yet, not yet. Hold your place. Speak the words given by you, given to you by God, and the Lord will certainly work with you. You may see many things you do not approve of, but do not fail nor be discouraged. I hope and pray that you may be clothed daily with the righteousness of Christ. While Ellen White supported the temperance movement, she advised strongly for the church to leave their support confined to that issue. What I'm wanting you to see is that the issues of society are not off, they are not beyond the reach of involvement, engagement, and shaping by the church. Not as the political operatives do it, but as the church should do it. Within the sphere of civil relations, Caesar is supreme. Within the sphere of moral and religious duties, God alone is supreme. And where would we be in more recent history if the church itself had not mobilized and acted on behalf of societal ills? Dr. Martin Luther King announcing to a society that while progress had been made, much progress was yet to be made. And without hate and vitriol, but with conviction and passion and determination to do right because it is right, led this nation to a higher ground. I want to talk just a little bit now about the componentry that we find ourselves dealing with as a church, or not dealing with, depending on your perspective. Luther wrote a, a publication in 1527 
This is an article where I've excerpted some of the comments, Pastors and Pestilence, Martin Luther's Views on the Church, Christians, and the Black Death. It struck Wittenberg, 18, August 2, 1527. Concerned for the safety of the faculty and students, Elector John ordered the professors and others to leave for Jena. The word here says ordered. I've not seen the government document, but you need to understand that Martin Luther did not. Instead, he stayed and he cared for the sick and the dying. Now, the plague, the Black Death, had a mortality rate of anywhere from 30 to 90%. It could sweep into a village in one night and people could be dead in a very short period of time the next day. When it came to this subject matter, his work, from, which is recorded in volume 33 of his own works, Whether One May Flee from a Deadly Plague, I really love the summary Sundeem gives to this. It says, the pamphlet blended Christian charity and common sense. Luther's behavior during these months of plague, along with his thoughtful treatise on fleeing the disease, offered compelling evidence of his dedication to God and his understanding of a Christian's responsibility to his brethren. In this case, that responsibility was to stay and serve in the midst of risk. Some scholars note that in this period, which marked the 10th anniversary of the posting of the 95 Theses, Luther composed the now famous, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Luther was further prompted to write after hearing how a, Dominic, a Dominican in Leipzig had mocked the way residents of Wittenberg ran from the peril. Now, I want to pause right here for just a moment. Why did he write this document? Because in the midst of a need to serve, it's not like the ambulances could roll in and the quarantine could begin, although quarantine is a biblical concept. We still practice it. But there were people who were not ambulatory. They could not move. And Luther was appalled that the enemies of the Protestant Reformation, the enemies of the gospel, should mock them for their fear in the face of danger. Now, we sing, fear I cannot know, anywhere with Jesus I can safely go. But I'm afraid as we've ridden along in our bubble, which is waning thin and maybe bursting upon us, that we have a variety of fears that have left us making decisions either for or against different medical treatments based not on faith, but on fear. And Luther is compelled to write to his adherents, those congregants, those what will read his documents, and basically say, listen, we're not standing up only to be mocked. We're not going to run away either, only to be mocked by those around us. Those who panic and ignore this holy directive that is, to care for the sick, will be judged harshly in the eyes of God. Christ, therefore, will condemn them as murderers on the last day and he, when he will say, I was sick and you did not visit me. Luther's writings on black death suggest that he understood the plague to be both a spiritual and personal test of character. Although the source or purpose of the disease remained a mystery, committed Christians had several clear directives. Preserve order, tend to the sick, and avoid spreading the contagion. Now, it just so happens that in our modern society, the last item is in controversy. What is the best way to do that? And this is incumbent upon all of us. That means it's our responsibility to try to understand where faith and practice, where love for God and love for, for man, where those hinge points crossed. Amid the terror of a, plague, of a plague outbreak, Luther urged his followers to display courage, common sense, and compassion. Now, I'm going to pause. I'll have a little bit more to say. Let's take the Bible. I put some scriptures on the screen, but now I want to open it. Take your Bibles, if you would, and open them up to Mark 
chapter 12, our scripture reading. Mark chapter 12, our scripture reading. They were laying a trap for Jesus, but it was not something that could work. Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 13. says, Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. They came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and you defer to no one. For you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God and truth. Now I'm going to pause right there because if you're a follower of Jesus, you remember the admonition from the Proverbs that says the fear of man is a snare. And if you're afraid of losing a promotion or a job or a placement, you're hardly of the category that makes itself clear right here. They were complimenting Jesus as a setup, but their compliment was yet true. You're truthful and you defer to no one. You are not partial, but teach the way of God in truth. If there's any hope for our modern society, it's that dads and moms, preachers and teachers, policemen and politicians will live based on the best understanding of their convictions, not only about religion, but about how free societies work. And when the absence of that narrative runs through the fabric of the character of a man or a woman, we are in big, big trouble. Jesus promoted and practiced and then left behind this very dynamic, which we looked at not too many Sabbaths ago when they took note, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. They took note. They were unlearned, not quite right, but they had been with Jesus. And this is the Jesus they were used to. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a Daenerys and let's look at it. So here's the fact of the matter. You have a true man with false men. And they don't really want truth. They simply want to lay a trap. And they're afraid of being found out. So Jesus exposing them in a semi-polite way, for sure, leaves them with a little modicum of respect and they draw back. Whose image is on this? Caesar. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed. Now, when it comes to the element of the Caesar's and the sixth day, I want you to recognize something. Take your Bibles and go back to Genesis chapter 2. Caesar and the sixth day. The sixth day is an important component of the creation experience. For on the sixth day, we see subject matter brought into existence by the hands of God. Not the words, but the touch of divinity. And some of what will be created by God is subject matter under a fallen world to be relegated and regulated by Caesar. And some of what appears on the sixth day is not quite so regulated and relegated to Caesar. And I'd like for you to have something to think about so you can decide how far Caesar's reach goes. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Well, no, let's start back at verse 7. The Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being. Now over to 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man and 
to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the cattle and all the birds of the sky. But for Adam, there was no, not found a suitable helper. Then the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon man, and he slept. And he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, brought her to the man, and the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of men. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. We have the amazing, amazing creation of a human by the hands of God, two humans who in unity reflect the nature and person of God. We find the institution of marriage being God-ordained in the beginning and after the fall regulated and kept track of by man. We also find the element of the human machinery in its awesomeness, which only grows in its, its transcending inspiration as we dig deeper into the molecular and biological components of our amazing human machinery. At what level does the government get to define right and wrong about marriage? Now, this is an important question. Because up until 2015, church was just floating along and everything was good. It was between a man and a woman. Not a man and an animal, not a man and a man, and not a woman and a woman. So at some level, we see civil regulation of marriage as duly the construct and stewardship of the government. But at some point in time, it has blurred outside of the God-ordained origins and definitions of Genesis chapter 2. And you need to understand, we live not so much in a, uh, as it were, a Roman republic as it is a democratic republic, and there is some bit of a difference between a subject and a citizen. And everybody needs to think about that. One comes freighted with a certain type of obeisance. The other comes freighted with a respectful deference to authority, but not the same kind of deference to management. In other words, in a free society, people govern by the consent of the governed. It's a dialogue. So when modern society starts to drift off the divine rails, and we see marriage being redefined by the government, as a church, it probably would have behooved us in some measure to have a little bit more to say about what was happening. But now let's transition, if we could, to the very fabric of human beings, bodies. At some level, the government certainly has a role in mandating public health protections. And they're not all just up for individual decision-making. The question that I think should probably come to everybody's mind, considering Chris Sundeem's commentary on Luther's work, is what is compassion and what is common sense? And for some in this society, they've decided that the sages of the ages with their sayings like hate makes waste suggest that a little bit more of pause for the injection of certain medical treatments is becoming and wise stewardship and others instead the hurry up and make sure you get this for the sake of the larger good. But when you take any financial responsibility off the government or the producers, you've now placed all the individual responsibility and risk-taking on the individual. This no longer makes sense. It is no longer fair according to the long uh, rule of adjudicating in this country. And there are some who say, wait a second, things are out of whack. 
But everybody needs to understand that while Caesar has certain obligations and responsibilities in a sinful world for the common good, there are limits. And when that discussion about the limits is, is abrogated or eclipsed, when it's shut down, when people are conspirators, not dissenters, we've actually fomented a slippery slope inside civil, civic and civil discourse. And it's dangerous. Now, I want to go to another sixth day, if we could. Take your Bibles and turn over to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 18. Jesus had his culminating work on the sixth day, and so did Lucifer. It was the God-man who created man. And it appeared that the long nights and days and years of waiting to have the Son of God in his grasp were coming to an end. Jesus is before Pilate. We know the dialogue goes on about what is truth. And finally, in verse 37, we get down to brass tacks. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you're a king? Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again from the Jews to the Jews, and he said to them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. And we understand what, what Pilate does from that point in time. He attempts to release himself from responsibility. He's compromised as an individual, and he's compromised politically. And he can wash his hands symbolically of guilt, but he cannot wash his soul of the stain of cowardice in letting a guilty man, an innocent man, be treated like a guilty man. And with the Jews in their insolence of supposed orthodoxy, seeking to destroy the God-man himself, Jesus is led from one ruler to another, where he is mocked and beaten and spat upon. A crown of thorns is placed on his head. A reed strikes him. Fists strike him. Fists, open hands slap him. Jesus is then taken out where he's scourged. And after two scourgings, he's flayed out on a cross where they drive nails. This is an, a complete abdication of all proper judicial processing. We see the role of Caesar completely corrupted by political fear and personal hopes for being saved from the ill will of the governed. And Jesus dies. Satan, on the sixth day, on the cusp of the Sabbath, has Jesus in his grasp. And he slowly encircles him with darkness and slowly intensifies his suffering and slowly suffocates the Son of God. Yes, the man-maker and the God-man-destroyer on the sixth day with Caesar's permission. You see, friends, the dialogues of a free society are a little bit more, they're just a little dirtier than maybe we want to get. They're just a little bit weightier than we want to carry. They're just a little bit more stressful than we want to engage. But the bubble that we've lived in for the last 50 or 60 years, if you're that age, old or older, that bubble is gone. And if we're going to live in a society where there's any beauty of holiness, we're going to have to conduct ourselves in innocency of motive, purity of heart, boldness of determination, and carefulness of speech.
But we're not going to allow a free society by God's grace, and even more important to us, a church that's based on the pursuit of truth, to descend into dynamics and decision-making that doesn't really represent the purest forms of that epistemological journey, that truth-seeking. Epistemology is the journey of discovery of truth. Now, I'm going to go a little bit farther here, and I want everybody to pray about this. I do this with the absolute utmost respect for the Seventh-day Adventist church. But the church itself is not beyond, at times, the need for the iron of iron to sharpen each other. These are guidelines for the Seventh-day Adventist church in responding to the changing cultural attitudes regarding homosexual and other alternative sexual practices. It starts with the long history of defending religious liberty and freedom of worship around the globe, the Seventh-day Adventist Church defers the rights, defends the rights of all persons of whatever faith to follow the dictates of their conscience and to engage in the religious practices to which that faith compels them. What a beautiful statement. This is an amazing church that has stood for so many amazing things with so many dedicated people working for it and so many dedicated brothers and sisters adherents of these 28 fundamental beliefs. The church affirms its rights to describe some behaviors, ways of living, and the organizations that promote them as contrary to the Word of God. Well, indeed, this is another beautiful statement, and one to which most people within the auditory waves of this sermon this morning would affirm and agree. And certainly those listening online, probably mainly the same. As a matter of fact, every time a pastor stands behind a pulpit, the ability to have open, honest dialogues about the Word of God whether it be contrary or in compliance with, it certainly should be a part of the liberties of those who stand in these sacred desks. The church asserts the right to express its commitment to biblical truth through the communication it makes available to its members and to various publics, as well as to defend the free speech rights of its employees to express the church's teaching about sexual behavior in public environments, including worship services, evangelistic meetings, educational classrooms, and public forums. Well, it's important that the church also protects the right of its employees to express as a part of the organization those things which they think protect the journey of truth. And now we come to the issue of modern culture, the crisis of the moment. Resources on COVID-19 vaccination information, guidance on immunizations, and additional NAD news and information. Only with deep respect do I continue. This is what it says. In line with the commitment, the NAD fully supports the Seventh-day Adventist Church's statement encouraging responsible immunization and vaccination. So do I. So do you. And as such has no religious or faith-based reason not to encourage its adherents to responsibly, important word, participate in protective and preventative immunization programs. I would probably go so far as to say is that 99% of you listening to me have all gotten vaccinations of various kinds. Let's keep going. While the church's statement recognizes that it is not the conscience of the individual church member and recognizes individual choice, the choice not to be vaccinated is not based on Seventh-day Adventist church teachings or doctrine. For this reason, the Adventist church in North America does not provide church-endorsed vaccine exemption request letters, and this is where the problem is at. I want to take a few moments with you. Because while we are not against vaccinations, we are for what the 22nd fundamental belief of our church states is intelligent stewarding of the body temple. 
And I'm going to read to you from it. In the middle of Christian behavior belief, which is number 22, don't go to the old yellow books on 27 because it's 21 in that book. It says, after talking about entertainment and other biblical principles, it also means that because our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit, we are to care for them intelligently. Now, I want us to think about this for just a little bit because everything we've read up to this point in time, we probably all agree with. And you may not agree with what I'm saying right here. That's okay. I'm challenging you to actually exercise the full spectrum of your mind, your Christian experience, and your living prayerful connection with God. The Seventh-day Adventist Church in North America does not provide church-endorsed vaccine exemption request letters. Now, while we have a general support for vaccines, of which most of us would find certainly a legitimate posture, when you find yourself in the middle of a pandemic and a hurried pace to roll out something for which free information is not easily accessible, there are some who feel that the responsible approach to vaccines and the intelligent stewardship of the body requires a bit more caution. And that intelligence is something that is affirmed in our 22nd fundamental belief. And because stewarding our body temples is not just a policy, it actually is included in the doctrine or dogma of the church, that half of the church, if it's that large or maybe larger, ought to have the full support of the church if it intelligently considers that taking the vaccine might not be the best stewardship of its person. Now, you need to know on Sunday after last week, I encouraged two different people, some of them family members, to seriously consider getting the vaccine. I want everybody listening to me. I am not against the vaccine, but I am against forcing people to take the vaccine, especially in the modern climate in which openness and honesty and free flow of information is not part of the common cultural discourse. But there are some of you listening to me today who probably better think very seriously about getting the vaccine because you have comorbidities. And I'm not a physician, but all of you need to make up your own mind based on faith, not fear, in conjunction with your medical provider. And you ought to make a reasonable and wise discussion and decision on this. But the final decision about what intelligent stewardship of the body temple is remains with the individual according to Adventist doctrine. And if Adventist doctrine truly believes what is recorded here, then there should be the freedom of Adventist pastors and administrators and religious liberty leaders to say our church affirms the intelligent stewarding of the body temple and we support any individual which determines under the current situation to wait or not partake of any medical treatment at this moment in time. And I want you to think about this very seriously. I've had different people writing me, asking me for help. The Seventh-day Adventist Church respects convictions of conscience. Amen. And while the NAD cannot endorse that vaccine, vaccine refusal represents Adventist teachings, your local union public affairs and religious liberty ministry is available to advise you in writing your own letter if you choose to pursue an individual vaccine exemption. Now, something that's important for all of us to know. The judiciary in this country does not try to establish what church dogma or doctrine is. It is important that the church does not try to establish for its members what intelligent stewardship is. This is an important thing for you to think about. There's nothing wrong with counsel, and there's nothing wrong with encouragement. 
But at the end of the day, listen to me carefully, any pastors or teachers that are counseling not to get the shot, and listen to me carefully, anyone else that's counseling people to get the shot. That's really a private decision between a doctor and a patient. And that intelligent stewardship as espoused in the 22nd fundamental belief is to be supported by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I don't know exactly why compassion and common sense haven't got us there yet, but I'm hoping that it will. The idea that we do not involve ourselves in the issues affecting and shaping culture is simplistic at best and dereliction of duty at its worst. Moral hazard, which was spoken about last week and some have written to me, and again, I'm going to say thank you. You care enough about me and this church to write to me and not agree with me? You're a friend. But moral hazard, the idea that the stewardship, the wrong stewardship of influence, in this case my influence, which is not for or against vaccines, the idea of moral hazard puts a weight on every person of influence that has the obligation to talk about these things. I had one person write me and effectively say, eight people died in Berrien County. Now, they haven't in the last two or three weeks, and I don't know if they had before. I wondered where he got his data because I checked the dashboard regularly. But he, in effect, accused me of moral hazard. I don't own moral hazard for you unless I tell you what to do. I don't own moral hazard for you unless I try to get you to do something, even if it's not a direct tell. You own moral hazard for yourself in a free society, but it's a lot harder when you don't have free access to information. The idea that we do not involve ourselves in the things affecting culture is simplistic at best and dereliction of duty. Now I want to talk moral hazard with you. Does anybody in the country of Ghana live under any complexity of conscience over vaccine mandates? Probably not. And how about Zimbabwe, where one of our own pastors regales from? Probably not. And how about Botswana, or Kenya, or Tanzania? Probably not too many. You know why? Because there's not enough vaccine to go around the world. So those people are never, in the next little bit, probably, going to be under any predicaments of conscience relative to the stewardship of the body temple over a vaccine mandate. But you know what the stifling of free conversation has done in this country? It has stopped the open and free dialogue about early protocol treatments. And that, my friends, might place a moral hazard on the whole medical establishment of the United States of America because people out there that could have been led by the best have nothing but silence, darkness, and the confusion of supposed conspiracy statements. And some are, and some are not. I'll talk to you about moral hazard. We care about the poor? Well, then let's allow the dialogue of early protocol treatments to go forward so that those people who will never have access to a jab of this or a shot of that have a sense and a semblance of understanding about what to do if all of a sudden they feel a certain way. Aligning with truth is not the same thing as aligning with a political party. And by the way, the mark of the beast will not be a direct assault on the Sabbath. The mark of the beast will be enacted, I'm absolutely confident. Because you see, this has been the wake-up 
for the workup. All right? The mark of the beast is not going to be something where the devil throws it out into society and pulls out his shotgun and starts shooting at it like skeet. The mark of the beast will come as a dynamic of roadkill in the effort to achieve common good for the world. And I want you to think about these things. The dialogue of common good today is the testing ground and the strengthening ground of spiritual strength and preparation, depth of thought and impact on culture that gives a little window of liberty before the final push for the ultimate common good is upon us. Yes, the mark of the beast will be an ancillary element with a primary purpose. And in the end, we will relate to it in somewhat of a different way. What hangs in the balance now is freedom to continue the gospel work. There are churches that shut themselves down conveniently for weeks and months and now past a year. What about the spiritual poverty of the world? What about people who actually do get sick and die? Don't they need missionaries to go who actually can give somebody hope as they face the grave? What happened to the heart and soul of Adventism that can take the best science and talk about it without hating each other and still teach people what, what happened to the idea of, of an avid presentation of the early treatment protocols that John Harvey Kellogg discovered in the Battle Creek Sanitarium over a century ago? Where have we been? And where are we going? There was a sixth day in creation. And God formed man, and God formed woman, and God formed marriage. And the dialogue with Caesar goes on. But it is a weighted responsibility that the salt of the gospel and the light of truth might preserve a society and a culture as long as possible. Indeed, may we render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar. And when Caesar blurs out of line, let the dialogues begin and the respectful, dignified prayer circles go into action. And may the church not fail to be what it's supposed to be in all times and all seasons. Indeed, let us render under Caesar. May we be the most respectful citizens with the greatest degree of civility in the common discourse, the greatest humility that we could be wrong, and the greatest firmness to not alter course until we know we are. And may we make this world a better place. And when the fear is gone and hope reigns again for a brief moment, may we be the most active people on the face of the planet getting down to business with all three of those messages, at one time attached to the abolitionist movement, but certainly for the eternal well-being and salvation of souls. May God help us all to strike the right balance, show the right respect, and give unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. Amen.